He is a great God. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and open up to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, we're going to be in chapter 3 today. Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, we've been walking through uh, the book of Ephesians together and really asking, uh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to quiz you. What, what question are we asking? Call it out. What question are we asking? Who am I? And more specifically, who are, who are we? Okay, who are we? Speaking of the church. And uh, we know that uh, this letter is being written to whom? Who is this being written to? Oh, we're going to call that. Who is this being written to? The church. Okay, everyone say the church. Okay, so this is important. This is important information for you and I. And important information for anyone who claims the name of Christ. All right? And is important information also for any of you who are going, well, I don't really know what the church is. And culture and uh, people and everything else seems to have muddied what that's supposed to be. All right? And uh, that's becoming more and more prevalent that uh, it becomes confusing. You have uh, uh, something called church over here and it's totally different than something called church over here. And so this is why, okay, this is why church, it's so important that we don't create in our own minds what church is to look like. But rather we come back to what God says it's supposed to be. And we say, okay, this is what we're following. And as I've said before, and I will say for years and years to come, that uh, it is would be the biggest hindrance if you looked up here and saw me instead of the cross, instead of Scripture, instead of the truth. Don't do that. Right? I, I don't want you as the church to follow me. I want you to follow Christ. I want you to follow the truth of God's Word. And if there were ever a time if there were ever a season, this is me giving you permission to do this. If there were ever a time where you are reading Scripture and you say, I do not think Pastor Matt is following what Scripture says, you call me out. Okay? Because that's what the church is to be. A place of mutual accountability where we're growing together to be more like Jesus. And that's why it's so important that we read through and study the book of Ephesians together as we process through this. Okay? And now as we transition into Ephesians chapter 3, we've already established Paul's prayer for the church is that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Okay? That they would know, that they would really know these truths. That was in Ephesians 1. And then to recognize that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works so that no man can boast. It's a gift of God. Okay? That was Ephesians, the first part of Ephesians 2. And then last week, we focused specifically on a, a single word, okay? And that is the church is what? One, okay? The church is one unit to be one, to be unified behind the purposes God has set forth. And that is a crucial message for each one of us. And so now chapter 3, we shift gears a little bit. But I want to start by giving some visual illustration of this. And so, don't be intimidated, but I need a volunteer, Okay? I need someone to volunteer. I'm not going to make you do anything weird, okay? I just need a person, someone. All right, Austin, come up here. All right. All right, Austin. <clears throat> so if you don't know Austin, this is Austin, brother in Christ, okay? Now, Austin, your task, I'm going to give you a couple of them, okay? If you were going to recruit a team to play a sport with you, like, well, what sport would you prefer? If you were, if you were going to play a sport, what would it be? 
hockey. Okay, if you look out here and you're going to recruit a team of three people to play hockey with you, just kind of who would you pick uh, right off the bat? It doesn't. You don't have to know their name right away. Okay, okay. Brandon's like, oh me, me. <laughs> Brandon can ride the bench. Brandon can ride the bench. Okay. Uh, Blake. Okay, Blake. We we've got Blake over there. Okay. All right. And one more. You'd have to pick one more. Who you got? This, all right. All right. This guy right here. Okay. All right. Now we're going to shift gears. You are picking a team of three people who are going to help you on house projects. Who are you going to pick? Oh, I'm picking you. <laughs> I'll pick Blake again on that oh, Blake one. Blake again on that one. Okay. And one more. You have to pick one more. <laughs> what does that say about me and Blake? <laughs> Oh, Phil. Okay. All right. All right. Phil's going, uh, I don't know if you made a good choice, buddy. Okay. All right. And uh, then we'll go last one. Um, you are picking a team of people to help you uh, create a special occasion dinner for your wife. Who are you going to pick? Um, uh, probably Janelle. Janelle. Okay. Janelle. All right. You got two more. Okay, all right. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah, okay, all right, all right, good. All right, that's all I need. Thank you. Everyone give them a round of applause, okay? That was kind of intimidating. Okay, now what I, what I wanted to emphasize there, is it interesting that other than Blake over here, he didn't pick the same people, all right? And especially, I found it really interesting that you picked no guys to help you arrange a dinner for your wife. Okay. All right. It, it might probably be smart. Okay. All right. But when we, how many of you ever grew up where you were with a, maybe it was an activity at school or some other team where two people are, had to pick teams. Okay. Have you ever encountered that? All right. And sometimes some of you may be like, oh, I don't want to remember that. It's humiliating. It was always the last person to be picked. Okay. And when that happened, you would generally choose people based on what you were trying to accomplish. And you might be strategic. You look at the lineup of people and you go, okay, who do I need? I need some big, big people if I'm playing a game, or maybe I need somebody who's fast, or whatever it may be. And you make your selection based off what those needs are. Now, it's, what's interesting is, logically in our minds as people, that makes sense. That I'm going to be selective here about the types of people that I choose to do what we're trying to accomplish. And what we see in Ephesians chapter 3 and what you're going to see unfold is that uh, this whole passage is focused around who God has chosen as part of his team to reveal some incredible truths. And the reality of this being, it's really not who you would think or maybe even who you would pick if you were in God's shoes. And so I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we work through this text today and as we seek to understand uh, what Paul is writing about here to the church. Everyone say the church, okay? And try to understand and uh, commit this to say, God, what, what are you teaching us as the church through 
this text? What are you revealing? What do you desire to reveal? So we're going to read, in, uh, starting in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 3. And then we're going to pray and uh, commit this time to God for, uh, for his teaching us through his word. Ephesians 3 verse 1 says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears to understand this truth, to understand who you have called, who you have chosen, to recognize Uh, And put aside our own human perception of this and truly absorb what you have called us to as the church in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if we look at verse 2, Paul makes an assumption here. And we're going to walk through so that there's no assuming that you know this. All right. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, we're going to back up a little bit. So that we don't assume this and ask the question, what do we know about Paul? So I'm going to I'm going to have you flip through scripture a little bit. And if you can't if you can't keep up as we're flipping, that's OK. I'm going to read each section of scripture, jot those down if you have something to write on and then go home and open these up and read them for yourself. I want to give you a picture of this to give give some background, if you will, uh, to what Paul is saying uh, here. So first off, we're going to flip just a few pages ahead to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three. And what we're going to find here is that Paul says uh, and through the text that he was a religious leader, a Pharisee, if you will. And you may have heard that term before uh, as Jesus encountered the Pharisees often throughout the New Testament. But in Philippians 3, starting in verse 3, it says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, 
As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now what Paul is admitting here is he's saying, hey, you think you have reason for confidence in the flesh or what the law commanded us to do. I, I have more confidence than any of you because I was that guy. I was that guy who really enforced this, who went out of my way to make sure people were enforcing this. And if they weren't, I was going to make sure they paid for it. Now, flip back all the way to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. Specifically, Acts 23. And this is just reinforcing once again, who is this guy named Paul? Acts 23, look at verse 6. It says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, to put this in context, he is in the midst of a longer dialogue here where he's on trial for the things he is now proclaiming. And so he comes before the Sadducees and the Pharisees and he's saying, guys, I, I am a Pharisee. Don't talk to me like I don't understand this because I have lived this life. I, I get this. Okay? And he states that. I am a Pharisee, not just a Pharisee, but his father was a Pharisee. Okay, this is a family tradition. This is his, history for him. In his family lineage. Right? So, recognizing um, that he was a religious leader of Pharisee. And uh, we know that the Pharisees were religious leaders of that day. And we know that they held specifically to the law. And they did not appreciate the message of Christ. Because the message of Jesus was, you uh, have a new covenant in my blood. And I've come to uh, fulfill the law. That in me the law is fulfilled, the price is paid, atonement is made. And so they didn't like that because it essentially said, hey, you, you don't have to spend all your time regulating what people are doing according to the law. Because in, in Christ there's freedom. There's freedom from this. And they were gritting their teeth and really holding on tight saying, no, this is what we've always done. This is who we are. This is core to our faith and we're not going to abandon that. And this brings us really into a transition to Paul's life before his encounter with Jesus. Right? So, Acts chapter 9. If you're ever wondering the broader story of uh, Paul's conversion, his transformation, come to Acts chapters 8 and 9. And um, some of you may have had the chance to read through this this week. And it was as a prequel to us understanding when Paul says, Assuming you know... The grace that has been given to me for you when we're looking at Ephesians. So Acts chapter 9. And this is what we find out about Paul, that he's zealous to keep the law and persecute the church in Acts chapter 9. Look at verse 1. But Saul, and I'm going to, expo- I'm going to show you a passage of scripture where we see uh, that Saul is also Paul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, 
so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, if you look at those just couple of verses, you might be going, whoa, wait a minute, this is not the same guy as I feel like we're reading in the book of Ephesians. This is a totally different person. This guy seems out to get people. He's mean. He's brutal. He's chasing people down. And he went to the council and said, hey, I want permission if I find these people in Damascus. I can put them in prison. And now this is, just to give you some more context, this is coming right after in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen, a faithful disciple and proclaimer of the gospel, comes here and says, or not comes here, he's stoned, he's killed. Paul kills, Saul kills this guy because of his testimony, because of his faith. The interesting thing about this, as we're going to see, is that other followers of Christ saw him as the same way. This mercenary who was out to destroy the church. But verse 3 of chapter 9 in Acts, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, flip forward a little more in Acts chapter 9, specifically in verse 13. At this point, Saul is blinded, and he's led into Damascus. And God appears to a man named Ananias and tells him to lay hands on Saul that he might regain his sight. Now look at verse 13 and Ananias' response. He says, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Look at God's response. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. And kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, how many of you, honestly, and reading the first portion of Acts chapter 9, would go, Nope, don't want Saul on my team for the gospel. How many of us, honestly, if that's all we knew about Saul, would say, This, this is not someone. Okay, uh, we, we all would feel that way. Which is exactly how Ananias is feeling. God, are you sure... I've heard about this guy. You know, you know the things he has done? You know the people he has hurt? Are, are you really telling me to go to this person and to heal him? Like, God, I think it's probably a good thing he's blind. I'm really. Because he's been killing my brothers in Christ. How many times is that us? How many times are we Ananias in the sick, in this sense? We hear someone who's come to faith in Christ or someone who's seeking to live out the truth of the gospel and we knew them before Christ. And we're going, God, are they really saved? Can can you really use them? Of all the people, really, God, there's, there's a lot of really good people you could use. 
But God says, he's a chosen instrument of mine. You know what? Many of you have stories where you could testify, yeah, I was that guy, I was that gal, and now God has chosen me for something so much greater. Far be it from us as the church, everyone say the church, to limit who God chooses to use. It's not our job. It's not our job. And it's okay to question. It's okay to go, God, are you sure? But if he confirms, you go. You be a part of this person's walk with Christ. You be a part of their transformation. By golly, we go. And we affirm, not discourage, who God has chosen to use. Now, some of you have probably already recognized that this man is named Saul, but the letters were written by Paul. So, briefly, I want to take you to Acts 13, so a couple pages forward, just to show you this, so that we can't stand here and say, well, wait a minute, this is a man named Saul... Letters are being written by a guy named Paul. What do we, how do we know this is one and the same? Okay, Acts chapter 13, specifically verse 9. It says there, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. In this passage, he is calling someone out who is against, who is preaching a, a word that is against the truth of the gospel. Okay, radically transformed. Radically transformed. So, seeing who uh, Paul is, who he was, who he has become, gives us an overview. And there's so much more you could study here, and I encourage you to do that. Read Acts chapter 7 through Acts chapter 9, and continuing to see how God used someone who everybody else is going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Really? And even the other people within the church, as he appears before them, and says, I'm a changed person. They're hesitant. They're going, wait, whoa, whoa. Put on the brakes here. But God chose to use him. Now the truth in this. God chose to use. Listen to this church. God chose to use that which was most unlikely to be chosen. To bring forth this message of hope. Maybe... In the same way, if Austin over here had chosen a guy to help him plan a dinner for his wife. And some of you may be really good at that, okay? We might go, oh, that's the most unlikely choice. How much more so has God chosen that which is unlikely to us to bring glory to his name? Why does he do that? Because then it can't reflect back on the person. They can't come back and go, oh, I've been a great person. I am an instrument of God. And it shows in my track record. Paul is going, no, 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 no. Consider who I was and who I've become. That God has chosen me. God chose that which was most unlikely to bring forth this message of hope. And not just this message of hope, but a message that was most unexpected. And we saw that in Ephesians chapter 2, that you all were once what? What is that word? Starts with a D. Dead. Everyone say dead. 
dead, separated, alienated, without hope. But now, in Ephesians chapter 3, he reminds us, once again, that the, the Gentiles receive that same mode, that they are fellow heirs. Fellow heirs. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, we saw that, Christ revealing himself to Saul, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, this is verse 6 of Ephesians 3, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Those who were most unlikely to be chosen. And the nation of Israel looked around and said, these people, those separated, alienated from Christ, Really? Now I want you to flip with me again. I told you I'm going to give you a workout today through your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So be back just a few pages from Ephesians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Specifically starting in verse 26. And there's so much hope and encouragement in this passage. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Everyone say, I'm not wise. Not many of you were powerful. Everyone say, I'm not powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Say, I'm not royal. But God, listen to this, but God, here's another one of those. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why did he do this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not because of us. And how much more powerful to have Paul write something like that to the church at Corinth going, (laughs) I am the least of these. I can testify to what I did. And I am the most unlikely. The truth to pull from that, if you convince yourself that you are not a vessel that can be used by God, you are lying to yourself. And if you want a testimony to that, look at the life of Paul. Look at the life of Paul. 
God chose that which was most unlikely to bring a message that was most unexpected, a message of hope. And it brought about unprecedented results. Now, I want you to go ahead and make your way to the book of Hebrews now. Hebrews chapter 1. And I'm going to read another portion of Ephesians chapter 3, but I want you to keep going to Ephesians or to Hebrews chapter 1. And Paul stated in Ephesians chapter 3, I'm keep going to Hebrews 1, but he says in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8, to me though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, this is where we're going, so that through the church, everyone say the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this. So that the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God has chosen to use the church to inform eternal beings about who he really is. About his wisdom and how this whole all unfolds. Now, we're going to briefly here, we're going to shift and we're going to talk theology for a minute. Don't tune out on me. Okay? This is really important stuff. And sometimes we get bored by this. I just want to know how I apply this to my own life. But if we don't have an accurate theological view of who God is and what these things are, then it hinders us from really knowing how do we apply this. How do we understand this? Now, specifically, I'm going to talk briefly, and this I say briefly because I think we could probably spend three hours or more talking about this, okay? And it's, a, it's the idea of theology of angels, of the heavenly beings. And I'm going to give you a, a short rundown, and you're going to have to jot down notes because I've, I have to admit, this has been the most challenging part of my week, trying to compact for you an accurate theology of angels without overwhelming you so much that you don't grasp it, Okay? So I'm just going to give you a few points. First of all, we're thinking about heavenly beings. The first thing I want to talk to you, remind you about is angels are not people. Okay? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the angels that God created as the heavenly hosts, they're not people. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we see this fleshed out. Hebrews chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, says, Long ago at many times and many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, this is talking about Christ, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 
And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, uh, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits? Sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Do you grasp that? That last portion in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Okay. Now, if you flip right, some of you may not flip chapter 2, verse 5 of Hebrews. Once again, talks about this. And says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man? And this is in the Psalms. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, listen to this church, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay. Now I state all that to inform us of an accurate perspective of this. When we're talking about the heavenly beings, are the church is being used to inform the heavenly beings of God's manifold wisdom. These are not people that are being informed of this. Okay, You would not want your loved ones who have passed away, to be an angel. Because angels do not inherit salvation. Angels are not created in the image of God. And this is the great mystery that Paul is speaking about, that the angels long to look into. Redeemed man will be exalted above the angels at some point. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Angels are not omniscient. And if you don't know what omniscient means, it simply means they're not all-knowing. They do not know everything. Psalm 103 
says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, O you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. In Matthew 24, it says, But concerning that day, speaking specifically of the day of the Lord's return, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. Now, one more place we're going to go, and then we're going to go back to Ephesians. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Specifically in verse 10. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. And the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The angels have really three ministries, ministry to God, ministry to Christ, and ministry to believers. And I want to emphasize that, and the reason I spent time on this is because we have to understand the depth of this for us to understand the powerful nature that God has chosen individuals, fallen humanity like us, the church, to inform even the heavenly hosts about the manifold wisdoms of who God is. And so if you ever feel like, man, I'm lacking in value, I don't know what my purpose is, I don't even know what the purpose of the church is, God is using, He desires to use fallen individuals, people who would not otherwise be chosen to teach and grow even the heavenly hosts about His manifold wisdom. Flip back to Ephesians 3. You won't have to, we're not going to turn any more today. But Ephesians 3, there's a couple specific things as we think about this practically. Verse 11 of Ephesians 3 says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness. Everyone say boldness. And access. Everyone say access. The emphasis of this is that through Christ, all who are in Christ have received boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't have to approach God with a fear And when I say fear, I'm not talking about a godly fear. I'm talking about a human fear. We can approach Him with confidence through Christ. Yet recognizing who He is, it should instill in us a godly fear that goes, I want to do Your will, to live in obedience to You, to walk in step with You. Verse 13 of Ephesians 3 says, So I ask you, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is Your glory. Paul being in prison, being in chains. His application, his encouragement to the church is this. Don't lose 
heart. Don't lose heart, church. And in this context, he's specifically referring to, don't lose heart because I'm in chains. Don't lose heart because I'm suffering. Because the things I am suffering for are for your glory. That God has chosen you, the church, to bring about things that otherwise would remain mysterious, even to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now what things might threaten to discourage me. That's what it means to lose heart, to become discouraged. And in this case, it's one who is suffering for the sake of the gospel. Many of our missionaries that we support live this so much more than you and I ever do. That's why I encourage you to read those updates. Check in on those people who are serving, who've, who've sacrificed every comfort that we have come to appreciate to say, we want to go. Don't lose heart when those people are suffering on behalf of the gospel. Because that's exactly what they've set out to do. It's exactly what God has called us to do. But what other things may threaten to discourage me? Maybe the direction our culture is going. And you go, man, I'm just discouraged. Don't lose heart. If God could use a man like Saul... To bring many to faith in Christ. How much more can he use a culture that is rapidly departing from him? But it takes the church being the church for that to happen. If we lose heart and become discouraged by that, we go our own ways. What's going to happen then? The lack of maybe earthly stability in our homes. Maybe that's threatening to discourage you. Church, don't lose heart. So I leave you with this. Rather than lose heart, what do I do? Rather than lose heart, commit to living in the boldness and confidence we have been given in Christ. Rather than lose heart, commit to not let anything stand in the way of the gospel being proclaimed in love. Rather than lose heart, commit to to being a part of unifying, not dividing those in Christ. Rather than lose heart, commit to reminding yourself and others that in Christ you are part of God's developing team to reveal the great wisdom of God. The church is a vessel that's being used by God. Don't diminish that by our own human understanding of these things, church. Recognize that God has chosen the things that are weak. He's chosen the things that are foolish to shame that which is strong, to shame that which is wise, because then, it's then that all the glory is given back to Him. So embrace your weakness, but don't lose heart. Embrace your shortcomings, but don't become discouraged. Commit your way to Christ and say, I'm going to pursue these things knowing that God can use even my shortcomings to bring glory to Him. Heavenly Father, we commit this to You. Pray that You would challenge us in this way. Continue to keep us focused on what You have called us to as the church. That You would be glorified in what we say, in what we do, in how we worship, and how we pursue Jesus with everything we have. That we would go from this place and do that very thing. And that our community would see you in this place, not us. 
That that would be our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.